1: Hello, I'm Sumeya Keynes, and you are listening to The Economist Asks. This week, we are asking, how can the humanities improve economics? Some say that economics is in crisis. Economic models struggle to reflect real human behaviour. The policies economists push either have disastrous unintended consequences or fail political smell tests. Could economists do with a helping hand from those in the humanities? What does Dostoevsky have to teach these muddled modellers? Morty Shapiro is an economist, president of Northwestern University, and author of Sense and Sensibility, that's sense as in coins. And he is with me now. Morty, why did you feel the need to improve economics?
0: Well, I'm proud to be an economist. I've been teaching in the field of economics and publishing for almost four decades. And I love the way we look at the world, and I love the way that we have some policy impact, and sometimes we get things right. But I've always felt from pretty early on in my career that we're a little bit too insular.
1: Is there anything particular in your experience that made you see the problems?
0: One of my fields has long been development economics, particularly early in my career. And I got to spend some time in a number of different countries, especially in Africa. And I think now pretty much everybody knows that if you have just a doctrinaire attitude about applying your basic economic principles of getting rid of government subsidies, etc., that they don't work that well. And, you know, I've been in a number of instances in the developing world where I saw that not being very successful. I mean, people were well-meaning, but it was hard to see much of a positive impact of our policies.
1: Okay. So in that, you saw that there was a problem in the way that they were approaching the situation.
0: Yes. Just the idea that you somehow can get a set of policies and they're going to work in Egypt and they're going to work in Nigeria and they're going to work in Zimbabwe and they're going to work in Tanzania, for example, you know, on the surface, pretty ludicrous. I mean, there's certain basic economic tools that might be appropriate, but, you know, you have very different cultures. And one thing, That economics isn't very good at is grappling with culture, the idea that people have respond differently to the same set of incentives. So you have to figure out what motivates them. And economics has never been all that good about figuring out what motivates people.
1: So clearly, economists try to work with other disciplines. There are some examples of them reaching out. What do you think they get wrong when they try to do that?
0: Well, I don't think they reach out all that much or all that seriously. There was a survey of professors at American colleges and universities, U.S. colleges and universities, and they broke it down by discipline. And they asked, one of the questions they asked was, can you learn from other fields? And 79% of U.S. psychology professors said, yeah, 73% of sociologists, 68% of historians said, yeah, we should reach out to other fields, but only 42% of economics professors, said that they can learn from other fields, and one observer wrote and asked the question, do you believe that 58% of economists believe there's nothing at all to learn from any other field? And my answer is, I wasn't surprised. I mean, if you look at citations, even if the topics are, say, the cycle of poverty, you know, do they cite sociologists and anthropologists? No, if they work on voting behavior, do they tend to cite Political scientists? No. If they work on a distant past, do they really cite historians? Often, no.
1: So, just taking an example, which is this decision to have children, that I think Gary Becker had a, a pretty strong idea of how economists should think about that.
0: So, Becker believed that you could systematically look at all sorts of economic factors, and that people do that in a very rigorous, systematic way. And it doesn't explain why everybody has a child or doesn't, or marries a particular person, or gets a divorce. But um, I believe he was basically right. There's quite a lot in the economic arsenal of tools, if you will, that help explain deeply personal decisions. On the other hand, there is an error term, and there's a lot in that error term. And while there is a certain brilliance there, there's, once again, as most economists believe, since you can't put culture into a mathematical equation, therefore, a lot of the things you can't actually explain. But culture matters and individuals are different. And even the Becker economics of the family, that works best for certain people in the United States. Does it really work in Pakistan? Does it work in Bangladesh? Does it work in Indonesia? Does it work in Russia? Not very well. That's because individuals are very different. Basically, the theme of this is listen to people's stories, take them seriously. Sometimes it's great writers who tell that story and in lifting ways. And sometimes it's just individuals. I'll give you just sort of one surprising thing. The U.S. put sanctions on Russia, right? So trying to make it more expensive for their imports by controlling U.S. exports into Russia. And, you know, what did President Putin do? He put sanctions on top of sanctions. He did self-sanctions and he said, this is Russia. You know, nobody's going to tell us, nobody's going to affect what we're going to have in a supermarket. So we're going to double your sanctions with self-inflicted sanctions of our own. And everybody was like, wow, that's right. Well, you know what? If you read War and Peace, you read Anna Karenina, you read almost any of the classic novels of, of Russian literature, you know, it's about not individuals. It's about Mother Russia. And, you know, individual sacrifice for the good of the whole has been a theme in Russian literature for 250 years.
1: Okay, so economists are modeling decisions by politicians. And in order to understand those decisions, it needs to they need to read the books that reflect the culture that those people are in.
0: Well, I think that's the first step. I mean, you know, somebody asked me in one of the interviews. So you really believe development economics would be better if World Bank and IMF economists, you know, before they went in country, you know, spent a couple of weeks learning, you know, reading the great literature? And I said, I don't know. But, you know, it probably couldn't get worse if you look at the lack of success of most development policies over the last 40 or 50 years. But I think if you learn the religion, and you study, you know, art and music is a, is a way to look into people's souls, I think. And, and certainly reading great literature, it's not going to hurt.
1: As economists, one is trained to disregard anecdotes and to look at data. How do you tell the difference between these stories and more general principles and truths?
0: With a lot of difficulty, because you put it right. And I always use the example of somebody does a survey and says, hey, you know, I love opera. And the price of opera goes down and the person doesn't go, you know, you revealed your preferences by your behavior. And we always joke as an econometrician, you know, don't get to know your data by name. On the other hand, to completely ignore the stories from your data set is pretty crazy. And, you know, one of the examples in the book in a different chapter is something I've worked on a lot. This really is my field, economics of higher education. And, you know, I've always assumed that if you got the prices low enough, increased need-based financial aid, that a lot of the most talented low-income kids in this country and other countries would go to the Northwesterns and the Dukes and the Yales and the Stanfords. But yet there is this tremendous undermatching problem, and I think it's true in England as well. There are some really talented kids who could go to Oxford and Cambridge and other great schools, but they don't go. And it isn't because of the price, and it isn't because they don't know that Oxbridge is a special place. It's because they feel like they won't fit in. From a
1: kind of high-level policy perspective, changing prices is fairly easy to do. Changing norms and social institutions within schools is really, really hard to change. So you can understand why policymakers, economists might focus on these readily accessible levers.
0: I agree, but if you look at the satisfaction when they graduate and you look at kids from relatively modest means, they don't have the same positive experience at elite privates and publics in the U.S., and I'm sure in England as well, as their more affluent counterparts. So what does it mean? It means that we have to be more preemptive. So that when they come here to let them know that it's their school, to give them, you know, the money to, for unpaid internships, which I assume in, in Great Britain is as, as, as popular as it is in the U.S., you have to have it on your resume, um, and, and a range of other things that we need to do to think from their perspective. And What's the best way we argue in this book, at least, to think from another person's perspective? It's the empathy you garner through great literature.
1: Do you think that there are any economists who get it right?
0: What we try to do in each chapter, as you know, is we have the kind of heroes and we have a group of economists who I think have been remarkably good and, you know, really reaching out to other fields. You know, we mentioned some of the great economists in the of Raj Chetty, his interpretation of behavior economics, Daron Asimoglu, whose approach to development economics, that is absolutely brilliant. So we have a whole bunch that we name, Amartya Sen, uh, Deidre McCloskey. They're people who have been not always perfectly integrated into the mainstream of economics but do a brilliant kind of economics that we think is a model for others.
1: So if there are some economists who are getting it right, then why do you think so many haven't?
0: I think think because economists, this is your field as well as mine, you know, we tend to be pretty good at math. So this whole idea that we're somehow the jewel of the social sciences as opposed to, of course, the dismal science is probably because we have technical skills. And just as, you know, there for many years in the history of science, physics has been something there have been physics envy within the social sciences, economics envy. And, you know, we tell stories about that going back for decades. And I think that, you know, when you're put up on a pedestal. Uh, the fact that our behavioral models aren't all that sophisticated, the fact that our predictions are not all that accurate, particularly on the macro side, less on the micro side does a little better, and the fact that our policies aren't always all that effective or in fact not all that just should give a certain hesitancy to economists to think that you know, maybe uh, we should reach out more. Maybe 58% of us shouldn't think that there's nothing to learn from any other field, and You know, a certain uh, humility, which is something you get, I think, from great literature, is is warranted.
1: And one final question. Do you think people in the humanities could learn anything from economists?
0: Yeah, I think they can learn a lot. I, I think the honest, disinterested pursuit of data is really important. And I think economists do that really well. I think that there's a rigor to our approach. You know, there's a certain approach to human understanding that economists You know, it's wonderful to be an economist and others can learn from us. But if you only get 80% of it right, your policy is probably not going to be as effective as it can be. And I think the other 20% is by truly taking seriously the understanding from other fields.
1: Morty, thank you so much.
0: Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: That's all from The Economist Asks this week. Do join us again next time. From me, Samaya Keynes in London, this is The Economist.